You're listening to Calvin's Institutes, Lesson 3. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. Well, good morning, everybody. Snowy morning. <laughs> and uh, we are now at Lesson 3 in our study of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Lesson 3, Knowledge of God, Scripture. Before I come to the prayer, let me just uh, summarize briefly the first five chapters that we have looked at so far. Those chapters and those chapters, uh, Calvin tells us that God has not left himself without a witness. It's a twofold witness that he has placed within every person. It's there, it's instinctive, it's ineradicable. That witness, that twofold witness within every person, bears witness to the fact that God exists. The census divinitatis, there is a God, a God of majesty who exists. And the second part of that twofold witness within us is that we know that this God is a God of holiness and righteousness. The seed of religion is there, which expresses itself in natural law or in conscience. And not only has God placed that twofold witness within every person, but God has also placed before every person a twofold witness. We see, we see the greatness of God in the creation, whether we look up to the stars or down deep within ourselves. We see the marvels and wonders of what God has done in creation. And then as we survey uh, the flow of history or the work of God's providence, that too is a dazzling theater, Calvin says, in which we can see both the mercy and the judgment of God. That witness is there. It remains, but it is ineffective, not because it lacks in power, or in significance, but because of the blindness of our own hearts, because Adam sinned, and because we also are sinners, uh, we constantly negate and confuse and reject the very clear witness that God has placed in us and before us in the world. That witness remains, but it serves now uh, not to lead us to a true knowledge of God. It leads us to confusion and to superstition and uh, to all kinds of errors. But it remains to hold us inexcusable. The witness is there, but it does not bear good fruit because of our sin. Therefore, Calvin says, there is no pure and approved religion 
founded upon common understanding alone. That is, through the natural revelation of God in creation. There's no true religion. And Calvin says, all excuse is cut off because the fault of dullness is within us. Well, it's a pretty bleak picture at the end of uh, chapter 5 of book 1. But uh, Calvin goes quickly to what he calls a special gift, and that is Scripture. He's going to show us how through Scripture we are able to recover the knowledge of God in creation that uh, we would have seen through creation itself if Adam had not sinned. Okay, that's a kind of uh, quick review of the five books. We come to Scripture and uh, we come to a prayer uh, from Calvin related uh, to Scripture uh, that we will use this morning uh, as we study this topic. Let's pray. Almighty God, Thou showest Thy glory for us to see, not only in heaven and earth, but also in the law, the prophets, and the gospel, and has so intimately revealed Thyself in Thine only begotten Son that we cannot excuse ourselves out of ignorance. Grant that we may advance in this teaching, wherewith Thou so kindly invitest us to thyself, and may thus steadfastly cleave to thee, that no errors of the world may lead us astray, but may stand firmly fixed in thy word, which cannot deceive us, at last reaching heavenly blessedness, that we may enjoy thy glory face to face, conform completely to thee. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Calvin will now introduce the uh, doctrine of Scripture when and where it begins to function in his theology. Now you might say, well, Calvin has been quoting Scripture all along, and that's true, but uh, he's been using it uh, incidentally and illustratively, I would say, because prior to this point, the knowledge of God that he's talking about is not the knowledge of God through Scripture, but the knowledge of God that would have been available to us in the creation if Adam had not sinned. But that way is closed now. It's there to hold us inexcusable, but it does not give to any person a true understanding of who God is. And so, Scripture now is introduced in chapter 6 as a better means, Calvin calls it, Another and better help, special gift, a more direct and certain mark. Those are all uh, Calvin's words to describe uh, the gift of Scripture uh, to us to enable us to see what we cannot see because of our sin, but would have been able to see in nature if we had not sinned, but to see more than that. Scripture does not enable us just to see what would have been available to us in the general revelation, but tells us that 
and tells us more. Calvin gives a very helpful and often referred to illustration here, and that is he compares Scripture to spectacles. Let's use a little chart here. Here we have knowledge of God the Creator. Uh, Here is um, us, and we can't gain access to this now because of our sin. So that, um, that knowledge is completely lost to us, but God in his mercy, through the Holy Spirit, gives to us the spectacles. It's Calvin's illustration, the spectacles. Uh, these are spectacles, eyeglasses, like some of us are wearing. The Holy Spirit gives us, that's the Bible, the spectacles. And through those spectacles, we are able to gain knowledge of God the Creator, this outer circle I used to represent the knowledge that would have been available to us in the natural revelation of God in creation if Adam had not sinned. But we, we gain not only that knowledge, but we gain even more knowledge of God the Creator. For instance, that God is triune. The natural revelation would never have enabled us, even if Adam had not sinned, uh, to know that God was Trinity. But the Scripture uh, teaches us that God is Trinity, and it teaches us many other things as well. So, after renouncing the general revelation in nature from the point of view of the unregenerate person, uh, Calvin points the believer uh, to it again as directed by Scripture. So, all those things that we talked about in the first five books, we know as believers, but we don't know all of that through our natural understanding, but because God has revealed it to us in his word. And that special revelation repeats first and then supplements the knowledge of God that would have been available to us in the general revelation if Adam had not sinned. Now, having come to Scripture, we need to talk something about uh, Calvin's doctrine of Scripture. Scripture is introduced here. This is the, the primary place in the Institutes where Calvin will discuss Scripture, although in Book 3, Chapter 2, and in Book 4, Chapter 8, you'll come to this topic again, as you'll see in the outline notes there. Calvin doesn't develop a long treatise at this point on the authority of Scripture or the inspiration of Scripture or the nature of Scripture. Uh, He does do something with those topics, as you know from your reading for today. And uh, we'll stop at this point and consider uh, those points uh, before uh, we move further, looking not only at what Calvin does here in Book 1, but um, at his general teaching uh, throughout the Institutes and elsewhere. These are the points I would like to make in connection with Calvin's doctrine of Scripture. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. 
The Bible is the word of God revealed in human language. And the Bible is confirmed to the believer by the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Those are the three important points. The third is, is very central to the section we read for today. Uh, the other two are there, but uh, are fleshed out in other places uh, in the institutes. First of all, the Bible is the inspired word of God. There are two persistent expressions uh, that Calvin uses uh, throughout his writings when he talks about the Bible. One is the mouth of God. Over and over again, Calvin will say something like, um, Scripture has flowed to us from the very mouth of God. That was in our section for today, 175. Scripture has flowed to us from the very mouth of God. And you could search through the Institutes and read his commentaries and you would find expression like that over and over again. The divine origin of the Bible. That's the first point here. I give a few places where you can find Calvin saying just what I said. The Bible comes from God. It's the words of God. The very words of God. The Bible is the speech of God. The Bible is God's speaking to us. Institutes 175, Commentary on 2 Timothy 3.16, and many, many places. The second point I want to make concerning uh, Calvin and his view of the Bible as the inspired word of God is that that word comes from God, from the very mouth of God, but it is accommodated to us. That's that's an important word for Calvin. Accommodation. The word of God is accommodated to us. In 1.13.1, we see Calvin saying this, as nurses commonly do with infants, God is wont in a measure to lisp L-I-S-P, in speaking to us. So he describes the Bible that way, as a, as a nurse or a mother or a father will, I think the way we could translate this best and understand it best is to say a nurse or a mother or a father will talk, baby talk, to an infant so that the child can understand. I mean, you all do that with your children. You have little children. You talk differently to those children than you talk to your classmates here. Talk Baby talk. That's accommodation. And that's what Calvin says the Bible is. It not only the Bible, the message of the Bible not only comes in the very mouth of God, but it comes from the mouth of God who is Father and who in his love to us so that we can understand what he has to say, stoops to talk baby talk to us. Now, 
people have used that in various ways. Some people have insisted that this means that Calvin is um, denying what we would call plenary verbal inspiration or inerrancy. After all, if God is talking baby talk, then can we assume that uh, the text of, of the Bible is inerrant? Uh, John T. McNeil, the editor of our version of the Institutes here, not the translator, but the editor, and the person responsible for most of the footnotes, makes that point in the introduction and in some of the footnotes that uh, Calvin uh, does not um, hold to an inerrant text. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute, but I want to get back to the baby talk idea. It seems to me, and I've noted the other day in reading John Gerstner on Calvin that he makes exactly the same point, that when God accommodates himself to us by using our language, by talking baby talk, by putting in the Bible things like stories and illustrations and parables and poems and things like that, that's baby talk, that that does not necessarily imply an errant text. It is baby talk, but it is God's baby talk. And God's baby talk doesn't deceive. It helps us to understand. So I don't really see the linkage between accommodation and errancy. seems to me that baby talk can be errant or inerrant, depending on the person who is doing the baby talking. And uh, when God lisps, or when God speaks uh, baby talk uh, to us, God is perfectly capable of knowing how to do that in a way that puts forth truth, pure truth, and doesn't lead us astray and doesn't deceive us. So it's a wonderful image, I think, of uh, the Bible. And Calvin will often, often use it because, you know, we'll read in the Bible things about uh, God having, God walking, God having hands, arms, and so on. And that's accommodation, Calvin says. We don't think that God actually walks on two feet, but um, that helps us to understand that God's coming down to our level and communicating uh, to us uh, in a way that we can understand. And God does that because he is concerned about us. He loves us. Somewhere, I think it's in his commentary on Romans, Calvin takes this idea of accommodation another step. And he says, if we love the people to whom we minister, we'll do the same thing. We will accommodate our understanding to the level that they can appreciate it and receive it. You see, it's totally possible uh, for a seminary student uh, to go out and preach or teach in a way that nobody will have the slightest idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Unless you take uh, the knowledge that you gain here and through the hard work of accommodation, um, make that accessible uh, 
to the level of the, of the people uh, to whom you minister. It doesn't mean they're not smart people, but we learn our own vocabulary and we have our own way of saying things and our own terminology. And unless we are able to express that in a way that um, others can grasp, um, we'll fail in our communication. So God accommodates, and we should accommodate also. Bible is the inspired word of God. It comes from the mouth of God. It is accommodated uh, to our capacity. And let me just um, make another point here. Our second point, the Bible is the word of God revealed in human language. Calvin is certainly aware of the fact that uh, the Bible comes from the very mouth of God. It is the words of God. But um, Calvin knows, too, that it comes through human beings. It's revealed in human language. Calvin himself is very, very much aware of this as a a student of um, humanism, language. He senses the different styles between the different biblical writers uh, much more than I do. He can speak about the style of Isaiah and uh, the style of another Old Testament writer and compare those, some better than others. That doesn't affect his view of the Bible, that one writer is... uh, a more eloquent writer than another. Another might be rather crude and direct and rough in his expression. still the word of God. That's what God wanted for that book. And another, Isaiah particularly, is a writer of high eloquence and beauty. So there are diverse styles in the Bible among Bible writers. Calvin also deals, not so much in the Institutes, but uh, in his commentaries, with uh, problems and apparent discrepancies in the Bible. So he's aware of the human element, not only in diverse styles, but um, in different uh, ways in which uh, the Bible and Bible writers uh, seem to contradict themselves or not be precisely accurate. And Calvin is always uh, aware of these problems, and he will spend considerable time in the commentaries dealing with them. There's been a lot of discussion about this. Some people think that Calvin's treatment of discrepancies uh, shows a kind of looseness in regard to uh, his view of the inerrancy of the Bible. In other words, even though he says the Bible is from God, it's the very words of God, when he gets down to working with the text, he finds problems and mistakes and has a kind of uh, free use of these uh, passages in which he denies what he has said about the inerrancy of the scripture or what he has implied about that in using the expression like um, 
the very word of God. Or Calvin can also use an expression like um, this. The scriptures were dictated by God to these various Bible writers. And uh, that creates a little concern, uh, not only for uh, people that would deny inerrancy, but for people that would affirm it, because it seems to us to go too far. But I think when Calvin uses the language of dictation, this is Warfield's point, he is not creating a theory of inspiration, but he is stating that the product of the writing is as though it were dictated by God. It's not that God is dictating every word and the human writer has no freedom to express himself in his uh, own language or his own style. But God is so superintending the process of inspiration that the product that is produced on the written page is as though God dictated those words. This is how Warfield puts it. It is not unfair to urge that this language of dictation is figurative and that what Calvin has in mind is not to insist that the mode of inspiration was dictation, but that the result is as if it were by dictation. That is, the production of a pure word of God free from all human admixtures. Okay, back to... uh, the problems that apparent discrepancies in the Bible. I think a fair study of all of those, I've given a list of uh, some of the more famous ones that Calvin deals with. You can look those up in the commentaries if you're interested in following that through. But it seems to me that in every case, Calvin does attempt to harmonize, to solve the problem. And if he fails to do so, He simply says, I don't know what to do with this. Maybe somebody else does. But um, he doesn't then draw the conclusion that um, one text or the other is in error. He simply confesses the limits of his own understanding of how to deal with that particular problem. And then quite often Calvin, too, will say, well, this comes, this error, this problem comes because of uh, errors in the copies. So I don't see Calvin ever admitting an error in the autographs, in the original writing of Scripture. He'll either say the error comes in the process of copying, or he'll try to harmonize, or he'll say, I don't know what to do with it. But um, that's a confession not of an errant text, but of a limited interpreter. Okay, let me uh, go through this next uh, point with you because so much discussion has come down on this. Did Calvin view the Bible as inerrant? Calvin doesn't use the word inerrant. In fact, that word is not commonly used for Scripture until... 19th century, although one writer, I think, has successfully shown that 
Now, some of the Westminster divines use the word inerrant for scripture. So the word is, in English, older than the 19th century. It goes back uh, at least to the 17th century. But the concept, uh, we believe, uh, goes back uh, much further, indeed back uh, to the scripture itself. But some Calvin scholars have adamantly uh, rejected this point. Uh, Bondell, he's one of the writers that I referred to uh, earlier in the syllabus in the first lecture. For further study, you can get his title there. Says in that book, Calvin himself never affirmed literal inspiration. Bondell uses the word uh, literal here uh, in the sense of um, inerrant or plenary verbal, literal inspiration. And then on page 160 of his book, Bondell says, The authors of the books of the Bible wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They were nonetheless liable to introduce human errors into it upon points of detail which do not affect the doctrine. He's talking about Calvin there. Calvin thinks that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers but permitted these small errors of detail uh, to come in. Uh, that's Bondell's view. John T. McNeil, the editor of our version of the Institutes, insists that uh, Calvin was not concerned to assert verbal inerrancy. You can see that in his introduction and um, notes, his notes to Section 488 of the Institutes, and in his other writings as well. So, McNeil agrees with Bondell. Uh, and then, the most uh, extensive uh, argument along this line, that Calvin was not an inerrantist, comes from Rogers and McKim in the book, uh, The Authority and interpretation of the Bible. They have quite a long section, pages uh, 89 through 116, in which uh, they argue uh, that Calvin did not believe in an inerrant text. Let me add one writer to that list. Um, put a number four there. Alistair McGrath. English writer that fairly, very highly respected by us, a evangelical scholar, teaches at Oxford and writes a book about every day or two. <laughs> but so much I appreciate about McGrath, but I'm afraid he's on the wrong side of this issue. And uh, this is his book, Christian Theology. Pages 180 through 181. McGrath, Alistair McGrath, 
Christian theology, pages 180-181. And this is what he said. The Reformers did not see the issue of inspiration as linked with the absolute historical reliability or factual inerrancy of the biblical truths. Calvin's doctrine of accommodation implied that God revealed himself in forms tailored to the abilities of the communities which were to receive this revelation. Thus, in the case of Genesis 1, Calvin suggests that a whole series of ideas, such as the days of creation, are simply accommodated ways of speaking, a kind of divine baby talk. The development of biblical infallibility or inerrancy within Protestantism can be traced to the United States in the middle of the 19th century. He's talking about the Princeton theology there. And uh, Rogers and McKim argue that too, that the idea of inerrancy is a Princeton invention. There have been plenty of um, scholars who have countered that. John Woodbridge at Trinity primarily and others that show that uh, Princeton did not invent the doctrine of inerrancy. It was not created by A.A. A. Hodge and B.B. Warfield in their book on inspiration, but uh, reaches back uh, through uh, church history. So some scholars say, no, Calvin did not hold to inerrancy, but uh, there are others that say, yes, Calvin did hold to inerrancy. B.B. Warfield, in his uh, Calvin's Doctrine of the Knowledge of God, he says on page 162 of that um, section of his collected work, Scripture, as given by God, is free, quote, from all error. It's Warfield. John Murray wrote a little book called Calvin's Doctrine of Scripture, in which he says that Calvin's characteristic dictum is that Scripture speaks with a veracity and authority equal to that of God speaking to us directly from heaven. Very words of God. Kenneth Conser, editor for some time of Christianity Today, and longtime professor at uh, Trinity Seminary, wrote in Calvin and Holy Scripture, Calvin held to a rigidly orthodox verbal type of inspiration. And Ed Dowie, in a book that I referred to earlier in section lesson one of the syllabus, The Knowledge of God in the Theology of Calvin, says Calvin conceived the scriptures as literally dictated by God. Dowie was uh, one of my teachers at Princeton, and Dowie uh, did not like the doctrine of inerrancy. Very much opposed it, felt it was destructive and harmful, and um, a teaching of fundamentalism, which he disliked very much. Dowie did like Calvin, but 
Dowie's admission seems to me is all the more important because here you have a person opposed to the doctrine of inerrancy who would very much like to have Calvin on his side, but uh, he admits that um, Calvin conceived the scriptures as literally dictated by God. He does deal with that problem of dictation then and decides that Warfield has the best solution to that problem, uh, the quotation that I read to you from Warfield a few minutes ago. Dowie says this, if Calvin betrays his position at all, it is apparently assuming a priori that no errors can be allowed to reflect upon the inerrancy of the original documents. Now, unfortunately, in his second edition of his knowledge of God in the theology of John Calvin, Dowie retracts a bit his rather strong statements that appear in the first edition concerning Calvin's view of inerrancy, largely uh, due to the influence of John T. McNeil. Dowie worked with McNeil in um, producing the footnotes for the edition of the Institutes that we're using. Okay, any questions? Yes. Um, the first four authors who are against Calvin's, or who say that Calvin did not hold the view of inerrancy, uh-huh. what are their individual views on inerrancy? Are they all opposed to it? Or are they yes, they would all, all be opposed to it. Uh, McGrath certainly holds a very high view of Scripture, but um, would not... Um, use the word inerrancy, thinks the word is unnecessary and confusing and problematic. I did see an interview not long ago with John Stott in which the question was asked, what are the five books that have most influenced you in your life? And the first book that he named was Revelation and Inspiration by B.B. Warfield, which... um, uh, pleased me very much that John Stott would uh, take uh, Warfield as being, uh, he says, the best writer uh, on the doctrine of Scripture. But that puts John Stott a bit out of step with general British evangelical thought, which, like F.F. F. Bruce and others, which, while holding to a high view of the inspiration of Scripture, uh, would shy away from the, the idea of inerrancy. Yes. Struggling to do with McNeil's um, point in the introduction, mm-hmm. uh, where he said Calvin admits of um, a flaw in Paul's quote of an Old Testament passage. Yes. Um, do you have any what Calvin does uh, there? Um, let's see if I have a note on that. That um, is in uh, McNeil's introduction with uh, a list of uh, problems. Calvin is frank to recognize that some passages do not admit of the claim of inerrancy uh, on the verbal level. Um, yeah, here it is. Uh, it's First Corinthians 2.9. Paul quotes Isaiah 64.4. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived 
what God has prepared for those who love him. And this is what Calvin says about that. Two very great difficulties present themselves. The first is that the words that are here quoted by Paul do not correspond with the words of the prophet. If you look at um, Isaiah 64.4, it's not what it says. So, is Paul misquoting? The second is that it seems as though Paul had perverted the prophet's declaration to a purpose quite foreign to his design. second problem is Paul not only misquotes Isaiah, but misuses Isaiah. Well, pretty serious problem, it would seem. What is Calvin's solution to this? Here it is. Where shall we find a surer and more faithful interpreter than the Spirit of God of this authoritative declaration which he himself dictated to Isaiah in the exposition which he furnished by the mouth of Paul? And uh, it's kind of a brilliant answer, I think. Calvin says, the Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah, and the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit inspired Paul, and the Holy Spirit can comment on his own writings, and Paul's comment, then inspired by the Holy Spirit, is an authoritative statement based on what appears to us a misquotation and a misuse of the statement as it uh, appears in Isaiah 64.4. So in a sense, Calvin doesn't really solve the problem, you know. still looks like a misquotation and a misapplication. But Calvin says, the Holy Spirit who inspired Isaiah, inspired Paul, and uh, we accept both as inspired scripture, even though to our minds and to our limited understandings, there may still uh, seem to be a problem. The words of Scripture cannot contradict one another because the Holy Spirit, who dictated both of the passages, cannot contradict himself. Is that a solution or isn't it a solution? <laughs> well, it's an assertion, and you might say it's not a real solution, but uh, Calvin's confidence in the infallibility of the Bible overcomes his concerns about what appears to him to be an inconsistency. Okay, anything else so far? Well, we're only part way through uh, what Calvin says about Scripture here. We have an inspired scripture. Holy Spirit has given us this scripture, which is inspired, I would argue, as I think Calvin does, even inerrant. It's a perfect revelation, but it's still not enough. Because, well, we believe that to be the word of God. Its authority is there because it is the Word of God. But how does it become authoritative to us? How do we come to know that it's the Word of God? How do we come uh, to believe that it's the Word of God? You see, we really have, you might say, two problems. Uh, Because of sin, we can't uh, know God the Creator. We're back in this condition 
But God gives us the spectacles of Scripture so that through the spectacles we can see what we cannot see. That's his illustration. You know, I wear these spectacles, and when I take them off, uh, I can see something. I mean, I know there are people out there, but I don't recognize any of you. Um, and not sure how many are here, and I have no idea what that thing is on the back wall back there um, because I don't see that distance very well at all. I can read all day without my glasses, but uh, even to see Julian here, I've got to put him on. So uh, without uh, the spectacles of Scripture, I look out at creation and I don't see anything. I mean, I see something, but it's confused, and it's, uh, it's, um, it doesn't help me to know what's there. But uh, when I put these on, then everything focuses, and I see what's there. So God has given us the scriptures so we can see. We can see that uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. I should have been able to see that without the Bible. But because of my sin, I cannot see that. could be, as Robert Frost said in one of his poems, uh, the heavens scare me. They don't declare the glory of God, but the vast uh, expanse and emptiness of space frightens me. Well, in a sense, that's that witness still active in an unregenerate heart holding him inexcusable because he does see that much but doesn't see more. But you see, the problem is not only do we need an objective cure, which is the Bible, but we need to know that the Bible is the Word of God. 171, hence the scriptures obtain full authority among believers only when men regard them as having sprung from heaven as if There, the living words of God were heard. These are the words of God. But they're going to have no force, no impact in my life until I accept that, until I believe that, until I know that. So the objective cure is the Bible. But the authority of the Bible is the question now. And Calvin says, how do we know? He will uh, reject uh, two ways and suggest a third way. He rejects the authority of the church. There were people that would say, certainly in Calvin's time, well, the Bible's the word of God because the church says it's the word of God. And Calvin disputes that. It's not the church that makes the Bible the word of God. The church bears witness to the fact that it is the word of God. It's not the action of the church or the declaration of the church that gives the Bible its authority. And he also rejects the idea that we can use rational proofs. And we'll talk about how those rational proofs actually function in a few minutes. But um, things like Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in the New Testament. 
We have all these diverse writers telling one message, setting forth one message. We have the majesty of the style of the Bible, even though there are diverse styles, but uh, even the cruder styles of someone like Amos serves the purpose in setting forth the majestic word of God. And other arguments for the authority of the Bible. Calvin says, those play a part, but they don't come first. They have a role, but uh, they're not primary. It's not the authority of the church. It's not from the proofs, so-called. Those persons act foolishly who wish to prove to infidels that Scripture is the Word of God. We're not going to be able to get our evidences and our arguments for the authority of Scripture and take those out and read them off to somebody and uh, prove thereby that the Scripture is the Word of God. So, the objective cure is there, but there needs to be a subjective cure as well. Because with the even with the spectacles, we can't see unless God enables us through his Holy Spirit to see. Now, Calvin's illustration gets a little problematic here, and he changes it two or three times. Now, here, the illustration is more of a person who's blind, not just a bleary-eyed old man as he first describes him, who can't see unless he has spectacles. But spiritually, I am blind, and as a blind, spiritually blind person, I pick up the Bible, I don't see anything. I mean, I see a book, maybe I see a a book to admire and um, to consider great literature. Or I might see a book that I think is full of errors and nonsense. But I don't see the Word of God until the Holy Spirit works within my mind and heart. The same Holy Spirit who gave the Scripture, who gave the spectacles, works a miracle within me. In terms of the illustration... My blind eyes now can see in terms of uh, the theology of what Calvin is talking about. uh, My regenerate heart now accepts the Bible as God's inspired authoritative word. That's the subjective cure. And... Here are the famous passages, 172, Scripture exhibits fully as clear evidence of its own truth as white and black things do of their color or sweet and bitter things do of their taste. How do we know that the Bible is the word of God? 
we know the Bible is the word of God because it impresses us as the word of God. Just as when we taste something sweet, we know it's sweet. Taste something bitter, we know it's bitter. We read the Bible and we know it's the word of God. 174, the same spirit who has spoken through the mouths of the prophets must penetrate into our hearts to persuade us that they faithfully proclaimed what had been divinely commanded. Here's the Holy Spirit speaking through the mouths of the prophets right here. Here's the Holy Spirit penetrating into our hearts. Same Holy Spirit who spoke through the mouths of the prophets penetrates into our hearts to persuade us that these books faithfully proclaim what had been divinely commanded. And 175. Scripture is, here's the important term, self-authenticated. Scripture is self-authenticated. It is sealed upon our hearts through the Spirit. It's 175. The French uh, translation of that passage done by Calvin himself says that the Scripture carries within itself its own credentials. Same idea as self-authenticated, but a little more um, lively expression. Scripture carries within itself its own credentials. So how do we know the Bible is the Word of God? Well, we know the Bible is the Word of God because we know the Bible is the Word of God. It comes with its own credentials. It authenticates itself. And the Spirit who gave it through the testimony of the Spirit, bearing witness to the truth of the Bible in our hearts, enables us to see and receive the Bible as the authoritative Word of God. To me, that's, although Calvin doesn't say it here, that's regeneration. That is part of regeneration. So when God regenerates us, gives us a new heart and a new spirit, that enables us to embrace the Bible as the word of God. Now, what about the proofs? He goes on in uh, chapter 8 to deal with what he calls sufficiently firm proofs which confirm in the Christian the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's an important sentence. The, the proofs, the, what Orfield calls the indicia, the arguments for the authority of the Bible, are sufficiently firm, Calvin says. There might be some debate uh, among us as to how strong they really are. But... Um, They make a point. Calvin thinks they make um, a strong point. But uh, those arguments don't come first. They follow. They confirm in the Christian. So they're not ways in which we can convince the unregenerate person of the authority of the Bible. But they are ways 
that confirm us, they interest us, they encourage us to see that our faith is well placed. Calvin calls them secondary aids to our weakness. You know, if our faith was never fluctuating, we wouldn't need secondary aids. But um, we're feeble people as Christians, and sometimes our faith, as we'll see later in Calvin, can become uh, embattled and grows very weak. And these secondary aids then come to support us. I won't go through the indicia, but I've summarized them here, and you've read through this. The proofs from the Old Testament, great antiquity uh, of the Bible, uh, the miracles that took place, fulfilled prophecy, the fact that uh, the Bible has been preserved through all of these years when so many books of antiquity have been lost. And then proofs from the New Testament, the heavenly character of the teaching, uh, the simplicity of its message, uh, the authority by which it sets forth that message, and proofs from church history, testimony of the church to the scriptures and the testimony of the martyrs, people that um, gave their lives in defense of and holding firmly to uh, the word of the Bible uh, as the word of God. Now, let's come back to uh, the matter of the function of these proofs. And uh, there are two ways to look at them. I think only one way is fully accurate as reflecting uh, Calvin's teaching. But um, we'll look at uh, the two ways. We've got Holy Spirit who brings conviction directly. This is the Word of God. And we've got the proofs. And we could see it like this. The Holy Spirit takes those proofs and uses those proofs to produce conviction. Now, that's the view Dr. Warfield held and very much wanted to find in Calvin. The other way of seeing it is like this. Take that arrow out. The Holy Spirit produces conviction. Sweet things taste sweet. The Bible is the Word of God. And those uh, proofs then follow conviction as secondary aids uh, to our feebleness, backing up and supporting what we have already learned directly through the witness of the Holy Spirit. Warfield argued that the Holy Spirit illumines by means of the proofs, but 
I think even Warfield recognizes that he's, he's not really sure about this. Uh, this is what he says. Calvin speaks of the ineffectiveness of the indicia in producing sound faith in the unbeliever and of their value as corroborations to the believer. And his language was, would sometimes seem to suggest that therefore it were just as well not to employ them until after faith had formed itself under the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Of their part in forming faith under the operation of the testimony of the Spirit, he does not appear explicitly to speak. So I think Warfield recognizes that even though uh, he would very much like to see this as Calvin's program, that Calvin doesn't explicitly say that. In fact, it seems to me that Calvin very much explicitly says this. One of the few times I've ever disagreed with B.B. Warfield, so note that. (laughs) B.B. Warfield is a marvelous expositor of Calvin and of all the writers on Calvin, ancient and modern. I still think he is the best, but at this point, I believe he missed it. The Holy Spirit illumines directly, as Dowie says, as J.I. Packer says, and the proofs are secondary aids to our feebleness. Okay, any questions about that? Yes, sir. Could to uh, connect that with the current debate in apologetics on presuppositional versus classical apologetics? Well, it has some, some relation, I think, to that, although that, uh, that debate, as you say, is as modern form that we really can't impose on Calvin, but certainly, if you're going to use that language, Calvin is a presuppositionalist here, not an evidentialist. He says the arguments come later. They can't come first. Think about this in terms of your own experience. How did you come to believe the Bible was the Word of God? Did somebody tell you that there's a prophecy in Isaiah that was fulfilled in Matthew hundreds of years later? Or did somebody tell you that the Bible was written by 40, I think 40 some writers over a period of centuries and yet has one message from beginning to end? Well, somebody might say, in fact, plenty of people say, not true. There are a lot of different messages. Of course, we think still there's one basic message, and all these different messages confirm and illustrate the one central message of the Bible, but you can get a lot of debate, as you well know, on that. I suppose I came to believe the Bible was the Word of God because my mother told me it was. It's sort of like the church. <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was more than that. The church can, can bear witness. Other people can say, this is the Word of God. But at some point, I had to believe it for myself, not just because my mother said it was the Word of God. And 
I don't remember the the proofs, even though I studied those and looked at those many times as having any formative effect in producing conviction in me that the Bible was the Word of God. In fact, that came so early in my life, I don't know how it came. Maybe just like Calvin said, just like I learned as a child that sweet things were sweet, I believe the Bible to be authoritative because it bore witness to itself. Any reflections on that in your experience, Julia? It wasn't until in my 50s that I started reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. And then the Lord came and transformed my heart through the Holy Spirit. And as I continued to read the Bible, there was greater and greater enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Yes. So would you say it was self-authenticated in your experience? Any other testimonies? <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see where we where we are now. There's just uh, a little bit more in Calvin's uh, treatment of, of Scripture, and I can uh, comment on that uh, briefly. Uh, you read these sections as well. Once uh, Calvin has brought together. Uh, word and spirit. We'll put the first illustration back up there. Uh, Calvin uh, is very concerned to maintain the unity of the word and the spirit against um, a number of eras. Um, One would be the Catholic era of subordinating uh, the scriptures to the church. So he comes back to this and says that Catholics are wrong because they downplay the role of the Spirit in illumination by subordinating the scriptures to the church. He's already dealt with that, and we'll deal with it uh, again um, much later in the Institutes in Book 4. The work of the Spirit in inspiration, that's here, and the work of the Spirit in illumination, that's here, or both works of the Spirit, it's not enough just to say that we accept the Bible because the church says that it is the Bible. We have within us the same Holy Spirit who gave the Scripture, now opening our eyes to see uh, the truth of the Scripture. But uh, the other era that Calvin is concerned about, and particularly in this closing section, chapter 9, is the era from people he calls fanatics who elevate the Spirit over the Scriptures. These would be people like uh, the radicals 
of the Reformation, people in Luther's camp, like uh, Karlstadt and Münster, who taught that revelation now comes directly from the Holy Spirit. Luther and Karlstadt had a great debate on this topic. That was when Luther said that Karlstadt had swallowed the Holy Spirit, feathers and all, with allusion to the dove, uh, because of Karlstadt's insistence that it is the word of the Holy Spirit directly that is uh, the word of God. Calvin says these people are so enamored of the Spirit that they saw little need for the written word. So his concern here is to hold together the Spirit and the Word. Calvin said, and so these rascals, his language is beginning to heat up a bit uh, here, and will continue to do so, tear apart those things which the prophet joined together with an inviolable bond. The Holy Spirit does not invent new and unheard of revelations, but seals our minds with the very doctrine which is commended by the gospel, Calvin says. Also says, he is the author of scripture. He cannot vary and differ from himself. Hence, he must ever remain just as he once revealed himself there. So, it's one Holy Spirit, and there's one word of God. And that Holy Spirit, who is certainly active now in bringing illumination to us so that we can read and believe the Bible is speaking what he has already revealed through inspiration to the writers of the Bible. They're not two messages, an old message and a new message. They're not two messages, a written one and a, a living one. The Bible is the living word of God and any attempt to put a wedge between the Spirit in the Bible, Calvin rejects as bound uh, to fail. All of Calvin's theology was carried out within these bounds. The objectivity of God's revelation in Holy Scripture and the confirming, illuminating witness of the Holy Spirit in the believer. The unity and necessity of both the Bible and the Spirit. The testimony of the Holy Spirit is necessary to believe the Bible. And the Word is the instrument by which the Lord dispenses the illumination of His Spirit to believers. So, Holy Spirit is active, teaching us, leading us, speaking to us, but only through the truth of the Bible, which is itself the Word of God word of the Holy Spirit. Warfield and some others have called Calvin the theologian of the Holy Spirit. And people perhaps at first think that's a little far-fetched because Calvin seems to be the theologian of the sovereignty of God or something else. But there's much to be said for that designation of Calvin as the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Even though there's not a huge section on the Holy Spirit in the Institutes. 
only the first chapter of Book 3, the 1559 version that we're reading, and that was put in for 1559, deals directly with the Holy Spirit. Uh, all four books are about the Holy Spirit. And there are many times, uh, for instance, um, as today, when we'll be talking about the Holy Spirit, even though technically the teaching of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit comes in Book 3, the way in which we are united to Christ. But uh, the three books, Book 1, God the Creator, Book 2, God the Redeemer, in Christ, Book 3, the way, Book 4, the church, all three are Trinitarian in structure. And not only is Christ and the Holy Spirit present in Book 1 in creation, but the Father and the Holy Spirit are present in Book 2 in redemption, and the whole Trinity is present in Book 3 in the application of redemption to us, and in Book 4, the Christian community. Okay, now we've got the Scriptures. So, we can turn to the Scriptures to see what those Scriptures tell us about God the Creator. We've got the Scriptures. Our glasses are on. The Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts. And now we can look all the way here to see what we are told about God the Creator. And uh, that's uh, our work for next week. God is God. God is Trinity. God is one. God is triune. God is the creator of all things. And God is the preserver of all things. We'll learn that uh, next week. Julie? Can you speak for a moment, if you would, in relation to Noah, Abraham, and Moses in regard to the Holy Spirit and the absence of the written word? Yes, before there is a written word in Calvin, in the Westminster Confession, God was speaking in various ways to uh, these people. And uh, there you might say the work of revelation and illumination was together. But God determined to put that revelation in written form at a certain point in history for us so that we could have the whole message of the Bible. You still have the work of the Spirit in producing it and in illumination, but those two are not simultaneous now. The Bible is there first, and then I pick it up. I'm illuminated by the Spirit. So God was always speaking, but in diverse ways and at sundry times, according to the um, Westminster Confession. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Sensing a call from God to serve in ministry? Visit covenantseminary.edu. Check out our degree programs and the many other distinctives that make Covenant Seminary a place committed to equipping you for a lifetime of ministry. That's covenantseminary.edu.